0: Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Dr. Anish Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. Dr. Higgins is Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. And Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo and an expert on myelodysplastic syndromes. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer, and if you'd like to join the conversation, you can submit questions and comments to yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. Tonight, you'll hear a conversation about cervical cancer and HPV with Dr. Sangini Sheth. Dr. Sheth is Assistant Professor of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at Yale School of Medicine, and here's Dr. Anish Chagpar.
1: Sangini, let's start with talking about HPV. What exactly is it? So it stands for human papillomavirus.
2: It's a sexually transmitted infection that is very common, particularly among young people. And it is associated with a range of diseases from precancerous conditions to genital warts to cancers um, in a variety of different areas
1: of the body. So if this is sexually transmitted, is this something that, you know, people can just Wear condoms or protect themselves in that way to prevent transmission, or is this something that can be transmitted regardless? So condoms are absolutely
2: important as a way to reduce uh, HPV infection, but it's not a hundred percent because the virus lives on the body, and a condom only covers a certain area of the body, and so. While it's going to help, people still have to be concerned about HPV infection, particularly because it is so common in the general
1: population. So if you want to reduce the risk of transmission, um, how can you do that, aside from condoms and safe sex?
2: Absolutely. Uh, So one of the most effective ways that we have currently is actually by using um, the HPV vaccine. So, that there, the most recent vaccine that became available actually covers nine different strains of the virus, seven of which are associated with different types of cancers and two of which are associated with almost all genital warts. And so that's an excellent form of prevention uh, for, for a large amount of the disease that HPV
1: infection causes. Now, who can get vaccinated? Can everybody get vaccinated or are there certain guidelines for who gets vaccinated and who can't?
2: there are guidelines for who should get vaccinated. Uh, The vaccine is recommended for routine use among 11 to 12 year old boys and girls. Um, And if they aren't, they can be vaccinated as early as the age of nine. Um, And if they're not vaccinated um, at nine or at that core time of 11 to 12, then the window opens up and we're able to offer women uh, and men the vaccine
1: up until age 26. So here's the problem that I've had with a lot of our discussions on this show about HPV vaccine. I think we understand that HPV vaccine is important because it's able to prevent transmission of this virus, which could be cancer-causing. But The vaccine really only came about in the last few years. Um, And so, if you have a population of people who are in their 30s, their 40s, their 50s, what do they do? Um, They can't be vaccinated. Um, Do they just kind of say, okay, well, you know, uh, we're going to take our chances? or, Or what can they do to reduce their risk? So for women old,
2: 27 and older, the key for them is really going to be screening, so cervical cancer screening, to reduce their risk as much as possible for going on to develop cancer. Um, the goal of screening is to catch a, a lesion pr- before it becomes cancer and to try to uh, deal with that before it gets to
1: something more concerning. And so uh, what is that screening, and how often should that happen?
2: So screening is in the form of a combination of pap smears, and also more recently we've uh, been using HPV testing, which is basically a test that looks for the presence of the DNA of the HPV virus.
1: But I thought that HPV is on all parts of your body anyway, so won't you find this DNA anyways?
2: The, the test is actually looking for a set of high risk strains firstly so that's about 14 different HPV types that are most commonly associated with cervical cancer and then some of the other cancers that HPV is known to cause and because HPV like you um, just commented is so common we don't start doing that HPV testing routinely until women are 30 years or older uh, in order to avoid having younger people who are often able to clear the virus on their own from testing positive and needing
1: to go through unnecessary tests. So so some people, especially when they're younger, can clear the virus and it won't go on to cause cancers. Absolutely. So young,
2: healthy women are very commonly able to clear HPV infection on their own. And so it's important that we allow their bodies that time um, to do that. So that, again, like I said, we're not doing unnecessary procedures on all these
1: women. So this HPV DNA test, uh, how exactly does that work? Is that a blood test or is that a a smear? How, How exactly does that work?
2: So it's
1: typically a, um, can be performed
2: on the same sample um, that is the pap smears performed. Um, and so it doesn't really require anything additional from the patient. Um, it's one exam. And at the time of the exam, we collect the pap smear specimen. And then it's actually done within the laboratory level, um, the different t- types of tests on that one sample.
1: So how do you know that, say, say, I'm 30 or 40, but I'm otherwise really healthy? How do you know that I wouldn't be able to clear that that HPV on my own, even if I tested positive?
2: So if if someone was 30 or 40 years old and they tested positive, if their pap smear showed normal cells, we would actually just retest a year later and give the body that time to potentially clear. Um, if the pap smear showed abnormal cells and there was HPV vaccine present, then we would say, you know, the next thing to do is to actually just look a little bit more closely um, at the cervix with, through a procedure called colposcopy, where we look with a microscope and take small biopsies just to give the pathologist a little bit more information.
1: And so, so we'll talk more about how we can detect uh, cervical cancer early, but let's suppose somebody tested positive uh, for the HPV DNA. And their pap smear was completely normal, and they felt normal, and they were otherwise healthy. We waited a year. We repeated the uh, pap smear and the HPV DNA test. And let's suppose the same thing happened. So they remained colonized uh, with HPV. They weren't able to clear it. Is there a way to treat HPV? There isn't a
2: way to treat HPV, um, and at that point, we would be concerned about a persistence of HPV. And when it comes to risk of cervical cancer, it's really the persistence of the HPV infection that is most concerning um, because, as I said HPV is very common, it can be cleared. And so at the point at which it becomes persistent, that's when the risk increases. And so in the situation that you just described, we would, the second time around, go ahead and want to perform a colposcopy because there is
1: no other real treatment for the virus. So at that point, you you do a closer look. And essentially, you're really looking at the cervix to see whether there's any abnormal areas. And if there are abnormal areas, you would biopsy them. But if you don't see any abnormal areas, then what happens? So that's a really
2: interesting question. There have been some studies recently that have actually shown there may be some benefit to still doing random biopsies, um, and that sometimes we can pick up on random biopsies some very small abnormalities that we can't see even under a microscope. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there, there would potentially be a role for still doing the random biopsies, and otherwise we would we would follow those women very closely uh, and have them come back again in 12 months for another Pap smear and HPV test. And the what works, I guess, to our advantage, you could say, is that HPV infection has a very long natural history from time of infection to when it causes cervical cancer. And so, even though 12 months, one year may sound like a long time, it's actually not at all a very long time, kind of in the
1: large, you know, broad spectrum of the uh, disease. So really, the HPV DNA test is really to stratify patients in terms of their risk, because it's not something that you can say, oh, you've got HPV DNA, I can clear that, and voila, you know, we've eliminated your risk or, or drastically reduced your risk of cervical cancer. It's more so that if you see this, you can advise somebody that they are at risk and need to be followed more closely. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So when we talk about following more closely, you know, you've mentioned, you know, getting pap smears once a year. What are the general recommendations for how often women should get pap smears? Should they not get them once a year or should it, is it more, longer than that?
2: Yeah, the um, the answer to that question has changed quite a bit in the last ten years, and so it can get pretty confusing. The current recommendations from um, several professional societies, um, including the American Cancer Society, is that uh, women should not be no most women do not need to be screened uh, every year anymore. Which which you know has been the recommendation previously so most women can go um as long as their screening stays normal can go every three to five years um the, the for younger women women under 30 the recommendation is every three years and for women over 30 as long as their pap smear and their hpv test are both negative they can actually go every five
1: years And so let's go back to the situation where you've now done this colposcopy and whether you've seen abnormal areas or done random biopsies where there are no abnormal areas. If you you take these biopsies and you see abnormal cells, tell us a little bit more about the stratification of what you can see under the microscope and what impact that has for the patient.
2: At the time of colposcopy, there's there's a variety of different um, kind of things that we look for under the microscope. So we we actually apply a solution to the cervix made up of acetic acid. So it's a mild vinegar-like solution, and that solution helps any abnormal areas stand out. And what those abnormal areas may look like are they it may turn white. And so those white areas may be areas that we consider biopsying. We may see some very fine abnormal vessels. um, And so that would be another indication for an area we would want to biopsy. And finally, we're looking for an area of the cervix called... um, It has a variety of different names, um, but it's kind of the junction where the outer part of the cervix meets the inner lining of the cervix, and we really need to be able to see that zone because that's the zone where often um, abnormal cells first start to develop, and if we didn't see that zone, then... um, we would consider it a, not a complete colposcopy, and then we would certainly want to also get a sample, um, what I often call a scraping of the the inner canal of the cervix. Um, so those are kind of some of the descriptive area, terms that we're looking for under the microscope. Um, that we would any of those things would probably um, prompt us to do a
1: biopsy. Fantastic. So we're going to learn more about what you look for in the biopsy, what cancers uh, could come about, or precancers, and how we treat those after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about cervical cancer and HPV with my guest, Dr. Sanghi Nisheth.
0: There are over 13 million cancer survivors in the United States and over 100,000 here in Connecticut. Completing treatment is an exciting milestone, but cancer and its treatment can be a life-changing experience. Following treatment, cancer survivors can face several long-term side effects of cancer, including heart problems, osteoporosis, fertility issues, and an increased risk of second cancers. Resources for cancer survivors are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers to help keep cancer survivors focused on healthy living. The survivorship clinic at Yale Cancer Center focuses on providing guidance and direction to empower survivors to maximize their health, quality of life, and longevity. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.
1: Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Sangini Sheth. We're talking about cervical cancer and the role of HPV. Now right before the break, uh, Sangini, we were talking about HPV, we were talking a little bit about screening for cervical cancer. One of the things that continues to come up is that HPV is sexually transmitted. And for the most part, it's the leading cause of cervical cancer. Is that right? That is right. So are there any other causes of cervical cancer? I mean, smoking, drinking, obesity, all of the other things that we think about, genetics? There
2: there are things that increase the risk of cervical cancer, such as smoking. That's an important risk factor. Um, And there may be a genetic component. Some of that we don't fully understand. Uh, And there is a very small percentage of cervical cancer, but, but still, you know, a small percentage that is not associated with HPV infection. And
1: so that area is still under study that we don't fully understand. Because that's one of the questions, you know, some people may wonder about is, you know, if you have never been sexually active... Do you still need a pap smear?
2: At this point, I would say yes, because of that small percentage um, that is not associated with HPV infection, um, you know, until we have
1: more understanding of that. Okay. So let's pick up where we kind of left the story before the, the medical minute, which was You go, you have a pap smear, as we all should. Um, Every three to five years now is the new recommendations. And if they find abnormal areas, uh, especially with a, a colposcopy, they'll do a biopsy. Now, on that biopsy, many of us kind of get results that may not be something that the audience would completely understand. We frequently are told things like there are some funny-looking cells or pre-cancer or a little bit of precancer or true cancer. Can you explain what all of this is? It sounds like there's a, a spectrum of change, and all of it means different things to the patient. Is that right?
2: That's exactly right. It, there is a spectrum, um, and so how I always describe it to patients is there are normal cells of the cervix, Then there are low-grade abnormalities Often that may show up in a report as something called CIN one, um, cervical intraepithelial neoplasia, uh, and those cells while they look abnormal, um, the risk of that developing into cervical cancer is very very low, um, and so the treatment then for something um, like that would actually just be observation uh, and repeating the Pap smear again in twelve months because. Even um, even something like that can clear on its own over time. The kind of next grade that we see is what I kind of describe as a moderate dysplasia or CIN two. The risk of that developing into cervical cancer is a little bit higher, um, and so then depending on a variety of factors, the age of the patient, how long that CIN two has been there. what their future childbearing plans, fertility plans may be, uh, we may have a discussion about again keeping a close eye on that by repeat pap smear or colposcopy, um, or we may have a discussion about doing something that's a little bit more um, aggressive, and I'll and I'll get into what that'll be in a second because the last um, the last two areas of the spectrum are something called CIN3, which is high-grade cervical dysplasia. Um, it's often kind of in the same category as non-invasive cervical cancer. Um, that's something that, you know, most of us take very, or we all take very seriously, and most of us would treat um, in a surgical way. Uh, and then there's actual invasive cervical cancer at the at the other end of the spectrum. Um, so the kind of the more aggressive ways to treat the moderate and high grade dysplasias are through um, definitive treatment with surgical excisions. Uh, and what that means, and actually some place some providers are able to do these procedures in the office. Sometimes it requires going to the operating room, and it means just taking out a small portion of the cervix, basically trying to get rid of all those abnormal cells before they spread or before they get more abnormal. Um, for the CIN3 uh, and certainly for the uh, the invasive cervical cancer, at that point, we're talking about, you know, something on the line of a, a hysterectomy. And again, for invasive cancer, at that point, they, the patient would be referred to an oncologist um, and they would need to have staging performed. And, and then the treatment, you know, gets pretty complicated based on. The, the stage they're at. Um, so so
1: uh, absolutely, there is a spectrum. Um. So, so let's pick up on a, a few of those nuances. So you talked about the, the most aggressive kind of way of treating CIN2 or that moderate dysplasia is taking a little bit of the cervix. How does that affect a patient's fertility and their ability to have children and so on and so forth?
2: The, the potential risks involved with doing that procedure when it comes to, to future pregnancies is that you may have either shortened or weakened the cervix, and so it could increase the risk of miscarriage or preterm labor. Um, and on the other end, you could have caused scarring of that cervix, uh, making it harder for that patient to, um, to dilate and kind of have a normal... Uh, pregnancy and labor, of course. In general, the, the thought is that these risks are increased, although um, the literature kind of shows varying degrees of risk. Um, but but for now, it is an
1: important factor to take into consideration for young women. Okay. And then for the, the CIN3s um, and the invasive cancers, it's a more aggressive surgical approach with a hysterectomy. Do patients have to have their ovaries taken out at the same time? So great question.
2: Um, I just want to clarify, for CIN3, for, for many of those women, again, still just taking out a portion of the cervix is a very reasonable approach. Um, you know, we may err on taking a little bit more of the cervix out just to be safe. Um, so it's not an absolute that those women have to have a hysterectomy Um Certainly by the time they have invasive cancer, though, it's a different story, um, and in, um, and there it just depends on the stage, whether they'll be um, surgically treated or treated with um, radiation or chemotherapy, um, but in general, um, for those women for whom hysterectomy is recommended, uh, in the setting of cancer, it would probably be recommended that their ovaries are taken out. Um, When hysterectomy is performed for other indications, the conversation is different.
1: So you've mentioned staging a few times now. So talk to us a little bit about staging of cervical cancer. Um, Many of us on the show have talked about staging, and our audience may be aware that staging is really a way of getting to understand how bad or how aggressive a course of a cancer will be based on a number of factors. But those factors vary uh, based on different kinds of cancer. Tell us a little bit about what's involved in terms of staging for cervical cancer um, and how you do that. So cervical
2: cancer staging is interesting. It's a a little bit different from the other gynecologic cancers in that it's a clinical staging. Uh, And part of the reason is because cervical cancer is incredibly common um, in the developing world, much more so than here. And so, you know, the rest of the world doesn't necessarily have the same access to um, to the technology in terms of CAT scans or MRIs or even some of the more advanced surgeries that we may do here. So by clinical staging, I mean uh, the exam. So what does the cervix, cervix look like? Um, what does the tissue around the cervix feel like? Does it feel like um, the, the cancer has an is just within the cervix. Does it feel like it's spread to the tissues around the cervix? Um, And then the additional studies that um, are supported for this staging are looking inside the bladder, um, looking um, inside the rectum to see if there's obvious disease there, um, and and so the so again this is kind of how clinical staging is done and then the the lower stage diseases the less advanced cancers um can be treated surgically with a with a hysterectomy it's usually described as a radical hysterectomy, um, meaning um, a little bit more of the tissue um, around the uterus and cervix is taken out. Um, and then for more advanced stage cervical cancer, um, it hasn't been shown that a hysterectomy or surgery um, is is of any benefit because of the disease has spread to such a degree. And in those cases, the patients are really treated with
1: um, chemo and radiation. So, Tell us a little bit about the epidemiology of cervical cancer that we see here in the States. One would hope um, that with the ubiquity of cervical cancer education and the availability of screening with pap smears, that the majority of cervical cancers that we see are early stage. Is that true? So about half of the
2: cervical cancer diagnosed in the U.S. is early stage cervical cancer, Mm -hmm. um, and another... 30%, 35% thirty five percent is um, stage two to three um, and leaving a small percentage um, about ten percent that's that's more advanced stage cervical cancer and and really the issue as you just said is about screening um, the the women who haven't been screened in the last five years um, or, or greater than that are at the highest risk for um,
1: developing cervical cancer and having that be high stage. So in stage 2 and 3, is surgery still an option or for them is, it, is are they only treated with chemotherapy and radiation? There's
2: probably a um, even within the stage two and three, they're broken down into subcategories. Yeah. And the very beginning of stage two, um, there would potentially maybe still be a role. Um, but certainly when you get further down into two and, and by the time you get to three, um, there's usually
1: not a role. Interesting. In so because, you know, when we compare across cancers, uh. uh I would have hoped that uh, for cervical cancer it would be much more like breast cancer, where the vast majority of patients present with stage one disease, and even a larger proportion of patients could have surgical management for definitive curative intent. Um, but it sounds like that uh, for cervical cancer, it's not quite as not quite as good.
2: It's it's not. Um, I will say that. Um, cervical cancer is not as common as breast cancer, so um, you know there's probably about 12 to 13,000 cases diagnosed um, each year of invasive cervical cancer. Um, and then and then the percentages, as I mentioned
1: before, where about half of that is early stage. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about chemotherapy and radiation therapy. Many times on this show we've talked about the fact that chemotherapy is really more systemic. It goes all over your body, it kills cancer cells all over your body. Radiation is really more localized. How do you in terms of cervical cancer decide whether you're gonna use chemotherapy? Alone or radiation therapy alone, or do you use both all together, in in later stage cancers? So
2: I, um, I'm a, i am do not I don't, I'm not a gyn oncologist. Um, so I don't tend to treat the women once they've been diagnosed with the invasive cancer. Um, my understanding in general, though, is that uh, when radiation is applied, it's usually um, has a boosting effect with chemotherapy. Um, And so it's it's a combination, but the combination is really to support the
1: radiation. So the key really seems to be that people need to be aware that cervical cancer exists um, and they need to be aware that HPV is a leading cause, um, that they should get vaccinated and uh, make sure that they get screened um, so that they can find these cervical cancers early.
2: Absolutely. I can't stress enough the importance of prevention with the vaccination. Um, And the vaccination has almost no risk and is safe and is incredibly effective. Um, And then the second arm of prevention being screening.
0: Dr. Sangini Sheth is Assistant Professor of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, And we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.